read a text of scripture. It's uh, not the one printed in your bulletin. Why should I read that? It's already there before you. You can read it. I, I, I have a different one that will supplement that text. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. This has been a, a, a sort of a strange sermon for me to, be, to, to prepare this week. Usually God gives me like an idea in my head and, and, uh, or I feel it's God's idea or I just go with the best thing I got and hope it's God's idea. And, and then I research it and do Bible study and all this other kind of stuff, put it together, look at how it's going to flow and rework it a bunch of times. I, on this one, it was a totally different thing. What I got very distinctly from, from the Lord was, was just a burden, just a burden. And whenever I tried to put words to it, it didn't work. And uh, I just kept on feeling... Lord, say, um, Greg, just show my heart this morning. Just show my heart. That's all I want you to do. And I don't even know how that's supposed to, you know, look, what that's supposed to look like. Um, but I, I know the, the, the intensity of, of God's heart this morning. What God's heart this morning is all about in a nutshell is that he's got this intense love for us, and he wants so desperately for us to know it. Not just know it in information, but to know it in an experiential way. And what I'm up against this morning is the stronghold of a cliché. I really think, I don't know if you believe in the devil or not, but I, 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 I believe that, that uh, this has been a tactic of the enemy to take what is the most profound thing in the world and turn it into a commonality. It's, we're too familiar with it. We've heard it too many times. And we all know it. We know it so well that none of us know it. Not really know it. Not, not, in, an, not in an experiential way. Least of all me. And what I think the Lord wants to have happen this morning is for us to know it. Not just intellectually. But in a way that is transforming. And I'm up against the world of cliches in doing this. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. <clears throat> Note that it's according to the riches of His glory, not according to anything about you, but according to His riches, He'll bless you. It's got nothing to do with you, except that you receive it. And then in verse 17, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in his love may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer here is I think really the, 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 the burden of God's heart this morning and that is that we might know what is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love? Now, that knowledge would not just be an intellectual thing because it passes all knowledge, Paul says. It's a knowing in the core of your being. It's a knowing that is an experience. It's a knowing that transforms our, our lives. Intellectual information doesn't do that. <laughs> this morning, God just wants to show his heart and break through the cliches. Let's pray for a moment here. Lord, I thank you for what you've put on my heart. God, I, I, I'm aware of the fact that there is, uh, that the, the message that you love us is a truism. And because it's become a truism or a cliche, Lord, it hardly ever impacts us, God. 
There are people here this morning, Lord, I really believe who, though they may know this in their head, their heart tells them something very different. I pray, God, this morning that we would see your face, that your love would shine forth with a passion and an intensity and a zeal that can't possibly be put into words. Lord, I can only talk information. You've got to do revelation. I can't do revelation. So, Lord, let your spirit have sovereignty here this morning. And open up our hearts, God, to let the coin drop in the slot. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Let me start out by reading a... I get a lot of mail. <clears throat> I read a letter to you last week. I'm going to read another letter to you this week. This is by a, a, from a friend of mine who's a believer. A brilliant kid. He's now serving life in prison for murder. And he writes for this uh, uh, prison newspaper. And he sends them to me once in a while. And this is one that he sent to me this last week. It's called Ciphers in the Snow. I'm doomed to remember a terrible true story that I first heard in social studies when I was in fifth grade. A teacher made us watch a movie that was unlike any that I'd ever seen before. The movie was called Cipher in the Snow. It was a mystery, really, about a strange death of a young boy. I think his name was Ronald. One winter day, as Ronald and a couple dozen other school kids were riding home on a school bus, Ronald suddenly stood up and began making his way to the front of the bus. Ronald always sat alone towards the back and was seldom noticed by his peers. But he was noticed this time because the school bus was in the middle of nowhere and Ronald seemed to be trying to get off. Ronald asked the bus driver to stop the bus. The driver, thinking the boy might be sick and vomit, opened the door to let him out. Ronald descended the stairs and his feet sank into the wet ground covered with snow. Ronald looked around for a while, staring off into the distance. Then he slowly sank to his knees in the ankle-deep snow and died. An autopsy was done to discover what may have caused the boy's death. The results showed that he had been in fine health. There was absolutely no physical signs or symptoms to explain his death. One psychologist refused to accept the nothing, that nothing caused Ronald's death. He began interviewing Ronald's teachers, his family, and anyone who knew him. He discovered that many of Ronald's past teachers couldn't remember anything about him. Some weren't even aware he'd been in their classes. Ronald had never once spoken up in class or contributed anything. His mother, who worked at a fast food restaurant, confessed that she didn't have much time for Ronald and even, didn't even know how he spent his time after school. Not a single child in Ronald's class had ever spoken to him, let alone befriended him. All they remembered was that he was the kid who spent recess standing alone by the fence playing with sticks. The only time anyone ever really noticed Ronald was because of the strange, bizarre nature of his untimely death. The psychologist concluded, concluded Ronald had been a cipher. Webster's defines cipher as the absence of quantity or the numerical equivalent of zero. Ronald was, according to the psychologist, a social cipher, who probably died from social starvation, having gone literally years without any love or attention from his busy single mother, preoccupied with teachers and disinterested peers, Ronald had withdrawn into a fantasy world where his only praise, encouragement, and psychological nourishment had to come solely from his own small 11-year-old imagination. And no one can last long on such a meager diet. Anthropologists have known about this phenomenon before. Um, 
for actually about a century. They've studied ancient tribes, primitive tribes, where they found that when the witch doctor, very frequently when the witch doctor pronounces a curse on somebody, they actually die. It may take a couple weeks or it may take a couple months, but the person actually dies. And anthropologists have wondered why. They've come to the conclusion that the reason they die is that when a, when a, a curse is put on somebody, the curse of death is put on somebody, the tribe treats them as though they were dead. They stop existing as a social unit, and that literally kills them. We were made to experience love. We're made to experience unconditional love. It is the most fundamental thing in our existence. It's the, it's the very core of our being. We're created to receive a love, to have worth, to be noticed. We're created to be somebody to somebody, to matter something to somebody, to receive some love and to receive some attention. That's the very core of our existence. That's the purpose for our existence. God created us that way, and it's beautiful because God wants to pour his love and being into us. So he creates us very needy. And that neediness defines our very existence. And when we don't receive that love, we begin to die. When, when we are loved and we know we're loved, we experience love, there is peace in our life because we are what we were created to be. But when we don't experience that, there can be no peace because we are at odds with what we were created to be. There's... There are forces in the world, and some of them are social forces, some of them are spiritual forces. They're forces of destruction that tear us down, that try to incinerate us by getting us to believe that in fact we are not loved and cannot be loved. That in fact we don't have any worth and cannot have any worth. That in fact we are ciphers. We are ciphers. And the message may get communicated through upbringing or may get communicated by past experience. It may get com communicated by rejection. It can get communicated in a million different ways. But to the degree that we believe that, that it becomes part of our mind, we have a cipher statement in our mind that we approach zero. And we are not what we were created to be. We don't experience that love. To the degree that we believe that, to the degree that that is how we define ourselves, we die. Dying physically is just the most extreme example of it, but we begin to die on the inside. We feel pushed out of existence. We feel pushed to the edge of existence because life itself is love. And not having that, we begin to vanish, and we feel that. And you can't possibly have peace in your life so long as that is true about you. We fight back, usually. When you, when, you, when you feel pushed out of existence, when you who are created with love, created with a need for love, don't receive it, it's no different than your food not getting, than, than your stomach not getting food or your lungs not getting air. You cry out for it. You've got to have it. This is a non-negotiable need. It defines your existence. But when we receive the opposite of that, apathy or hatred, we cry out. There is no peace. One thing we do is we try, to, we, we, we try to fight for existence, which means we try to fight for love. We don't want to disintegrate. We want to live. And so now we try to work at it. We try to, uh, through a lot of different ways, through how we look or how we talk or, or what we own, we try to earn love from people. Strategizing, constantly trying to get love from people because we've got to have love. We're hungry. Will you feed me? Will you feed me? If you're of a religious persuasion, sometimes people try to, try to get love from God. They try to earn love from God. They try to look nice enough and, and do the right things in order to get love from God. But it doesn't work. There's never any peace in that. 
Because we are meant to be loved unconditionally. And when we work to get love, whatever love we do get isn't unconditional, and our soul knows it, so we're still starved. But there's no peace there. There's constant anxiety, constant worry, constant fretting. Another thing we sometimes do is as we're being pushed to the edge of existence and feel non-entity because we have cipher messages in our mind caused by events maybe that were cipher events communicating that you're nothing, you're not worth much. We rage. It's no different than when your side is pierced with a knife. When your side's pierced with a knife, your, your side wasn't meant to be pierced by a knife. And so it, there's, there's an eruption of pain and you begin to bleed. It's an unnatural event. So also, your soul was made to be loved. It's natural for it to be loved. It's supposed to be loved. It's supposed to be noticed. It's supposed to have worth. And when that doesn't happen, it cries out. It is pierced by non-attention. It is pierced by hatred. It's pierced by rejection. And it cries out. I don't want to die. I do not want to die. I don't want to cease existing. And that rage can take a lot of different forms. It can be, it can be the explosion that you tend to have over little things in your life, this sort of volcano. Some people are like walking volcanoes. They just, little thing just blows them off. Or it can come out as a kind of a perpetual anxiety. Just constantly anxious, never know why, can't put your finger on it, but you're constantly nervous, constantly overthinking, constantly over-speculating, kind of paranoid. It can sometimes come out as, as, as turning against yourself, self-destructive behaviors. The rage is against yourself. You're mad at the fact that you feel so painful over being a cipher. And it can be a chronic kind of depression. Don't know why you're depressed, just kind of always depressed. The ultimate form of it is, is a sort of despair where you actually begin to resign yourself to being a cipher, that you just don't matter, that you just don't matter. And the heart of God this morning, I really believe, the burden is that we might know, that we might know in our core, in, the, in our heart of hearts, in our innermost being, that we are, in fact, loved with an infinite, everlasting love. And I know I'm going against a world of cliches in saying that, but that we might know in our gut, as an experience, that is true of us. So often believers have this picture of God that is just not at all accurate. They don't know who God is and they don't know who they are. They've got all the theological right statements, all the pat answers for things, but what really operates in their gut is, is that they have a view of God that's not at all lovely, not at all beautiful, not at all loving. And so they don't experience who they are. God so desperately wants us to know who we are. I had a event happened about a week and a half ago now that, that really shared that, that really got home this, this, this point to me. Actually got me thinking on this line. We were uh, going to go see Santa Claus. Um, we do it every year. For five years now we've had uh, uh, an ongoing thing where we get, the kids get their pictures taken with Santa Claus. And uh, so we were, we were going to go out and it wasn't that pleasant of a time trying to get the kids to go out. Uh, you know, our older girls thought they're getting a little too old for this. Come on, what if someone sees us when we're up there sitting on Santa's lap? This will not be cool. Um, and, and so they didn't want to go, but we were pretty determined. I mean, we got a tradition here. We're going to keep this tradition here. I want your pictures with Santa, and you're going to smell. We're going to have fun. <laughs> you will be happy. <laughs> oh, it was, it was, a, it was a, a kind of a bad night. Uh, trying to get things out, and, and the, the girls were, you know, they actually were pretty cooperative. It was our, our little Nathan who really made it kind of miserable. Um, 
you know, I, I, I've told you about Nathan before, and, and uh, I don't know what it was. I don't even remember what it was, but it, it wasn't atypical, really. This happens a lot at our house, but there's a tension that begins to rise, and, and anger begins to go, and, and I don't know how many glasses he broke or spilled over the, the milk and, and crushed food on the floor and threw a little tantrum and, and this and that and the other thing, but he didn't want to go. We wanted to go. This is the only night we had free to go, so he's going to go. But it was a tense night, and, and he did some things that maybe weren't very nice. We went to go see Santa Claus. Sat in Santa's lap, and, and um, after the kids got their pictures taken, Santa asked the traditional question that you're supposed to ask. Um, our, the girls had gotten off his lap, and he said to Nathan, Nathan, have, have you been a good little boy this year? Nathan, Nathan just kind of, he looked down at that point. He shrugged his shoulders like this, and he went, not really. Not really. Caught Santa a little bit off guard, you know. Kid, you're supposed to lie. <laughs> Come on, go along with the game here. He goes, not really. And my heart broke. My heart broke when, I, when, when he said that. I just wanted to take him and hold him and just communicate to him just the wonderful truth about how good he really is. Nathan, apart from the things that happen, yeah, sometimes you do screwy things and, and, you, and you act out and you, and you drive us crazy, you drive us to the end, you push us to the end. But Nathan, that doesn't have anything to do. It doesn't affect in the least how we love you and what we think about you and who you are because who you are is a great kid. You're the best kid in the world and you deserve every, every present Santa Claus could ever bring anybody. And I just wanted to rush in and surround him and say, Nathan, whatever happened tonight wasn't about you. Never confuse that. Your heart is a beautiful heart. You're an energetic kid. You don't, you don't even understand why you do this stuff. But your worth, your value, who you are is a settled thing. It's a done deal. And we love you more than we could. We couldn't love you more. If only you knew how beautiful a kid you are. And it was at that point that the God really said, Greg, that is a little teeny slice of how I feel towards my children when they don't realize who they are. When we say, not really, not really. Good news, good news, beautiful stuff, nice stuff, but it doesn't really apply to me. And we live like that. God's heart breaks because he wants us so badly to know what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of, uh, width of his love for us. To know it in our innermost beings, that is his heart. We get so many wrong messages. We, we base who we are, like, like little Nathan. We get a not really. We shrug our shoulders because we, we judge ourselves based on, on, on what we do instead of who we are because God loves us. We, we, we draw implications from our past. We draw implications from the sin in our life. We draw implications from the fact that we never pray enough. We never go to church enough. We never give enough. We never contribute enough. We draw implications from the divorce we went through or the abortion that we had. We draw implications from all the times we swear. We, we use that to decide who we are as we shrug our shoulders and say not really and the Lord just it breaks his heart because he knows your heart and you've got a heart that says yes to God and if you've got a heart that says yes to God it doesn't make a whole lot of difference what kind of muck that you're in at the time he can lift you out of it if you only know who you are if you can just see his unconditional love and it's that love and nothing else that defines who you are 
God wants so badly to know, for us to know that. I want to share God's heart, and I can't do it because it can become a cliche. But let me just read a couple of things that the Lord has said. He, his, in, in his word, he's just done so much to try to show us that. I mean, this is Christmas time. It, it should be enough that, that, that we see that, that, that he would come and, and become a man for us. The God Almighty, the creator of the universe, who speaks all the stars into existence and holds every molecule in existence. God Almighty would become a little baby wrapped in, in ragged clothes and put in a feeding trough full of animal spit for us. And he would do that for the sole purpose of dying on a cross, a hellish death, that we could live forever for him. I don't get it. What kind of God would do that? What was he thinking of? He's got to be crazy. He's got to be out of his head. And if we think that, it's because I and maybe you don't, don't really see the intensity of his love for us. What kind of God would do that? A God of love. Throughout Scripture, he's tried in so many ways to, to take us when we say not really and to, and, and to rush towards us and to, to tell us, you've got to know who you are. You've got to know what I think about you. You've got to know who I am and how what you do hasn't changed that. Let me, let me just give you two biblical images. One is from the book of Isaiah. God's love for us is like a, a loving mother. This maybe is going to surprise some of you, but God's love for us is like a perfect loving mother. There was a time when Israel was going through some hard stuff. The Assyrians were coming there and getting knocked on their butts. And, and, and they thought that God had forsaken them. It said, Zion, or Israel, the people of God said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Do you ever feel like that? Maybe not forgotten you, but just doesn't pay much attention. I mean, God is so big and I am so small. And God is so holy and I am so unclean. What does he care? Not really. The Lord says to Israel, Can a woman forget her sucking child, her nursing child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her own womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have graven you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. God's love for us is the kind of love, it's like the love of a mother for a newborn child. In fact, the, the, the text actually means, uh, ask the question, can a mother forget her newborn child? nursing infant while the infant is nursing. Maybe you could forget them for a little bit while they weren't nursing, but when they're nursing, you're going to be inclined to remember them. I would think. I'm not talking from experience here, but... God's love is like that of a nursing mother. Have you ever seen a, a, a natural, loving, normal mother and nursing an, an infant? It's a, it's a thing of beauty. There's a bonding that goes on there, a, a warmth that goes on there, a union that goes on there that is just beautiful. Shelly's face, when she'd be nursing Danae, used to just radiate. It just used to radiate. Not in the nighttime feedings, but during the daytime feedings, she would radiate. It would just be a thing of glory. Because there's the, the, the mother's love there, it, you know, and it doesn't matter much, does it? It doesn't matter much whether that baby's got a couple freckles here and there, or whether the nose is not right, or the eyes aren't, aren't quite straight, or if the you know, baby's a little fussy and whiny and doesn't appreciate the mother. That love that that mother has for that child is an unconditional, burning hot, passionate love that isn't affected by those kind of things. It's not even affected when the baby decides to release itself in its diapers. I've been times when I, I come in the you know, room while Shelly's nursing, and, and it's like, whoa, yeah, ha, whoo. She doesn't even notice it. So the baby's soiled. God's love for us, if we can get a picture of this, if we can just get a picture of it, is the love of a mother towards a nursing infant. The love of a mother towards a nursing infant. 
And the Lord goes, goes on and it gets a little better. The Lord says, okay, may, maybe the mother could forget. Maybe, the, maybe it's conceivable that a, a nursing mother could forget. Still, I won't forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. I've engraved you on the palms of my hand. What's going on there? The Lord, 800 years before, before uh, the crucifixion, before cru crucifying people was a form of execution, we have here a prophecy that the Lord himself is going to come down and his hands are going to be pierced. His palms are going to be pierced. Spike driven through his ankles, spikes driven through his hands. And now the Lord tells us the meaning of those spikes. And the meaning of those spikes is that on, in the middle of his palms is your name. It's your name. Do you know that the Lord, when he, when he rose, um, he, he, he retained his, his scars? That's why Thomas, the doubting Thomas in John chapter 20, could put his, his hand in the side of, of Jesus where the spear had been. And you might ask the question, why would, why would Jesus, when he rose from the dead and has a beautiful transfigured body, keep his scars? And the answer is that those scars are part of his beauty. Those scars are part of his love. Those scars are part of what shows off the infinitude of his grace, the splendor of his love, his ravishing beauty. They're constant reminders of his love for us, that he was willing in his love to go that far for us. And now our name, to anyone who has a heart that says yes to God, our names are written in his palm. And it's not just the name of the world, or it's not just the name of the church. You know, sometimes we get like that. You know, when we say, oh, God so loved the world. Yeah, God loves everybody. Isn't he a nice God? But when it comes to me individually, all of a sudden, it's, it's more of a not really, not really. Because everyone else, you know, is kind of clean, but I'm not that clean. And everyone else is pure, but I, I'm not that pure. And I'm the only one in this congregation who ever cheated on, uh, on her husband. And I'm the only one who's ever done this sin or that sin. And so maybe it applies to the world, but it doesn't really apply to you. And see, a general kind of love towards the world doesn't impact you. It doesn't transform you. But it's your name that is on Jesus' palm. Can you believe that? His love for you. There is Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd. And he could never forget Greg Boyd. He died for Greg Boyd. And Greg Boyd, because of what he's done, is a thing of beauty for him. It's an individual thing. It's about you individually. God's got the love of a, of a nursing mother towards a little baby. I wonder if you can see yourself as just being... I sometimes, I, I sometimes go to the Lord and I just feel like a little infant. I want to become a little infant. I sometimes go to the Lord and I need a mother's love. I don't know if that relates to you, but I need a mother's love. I always grew up kind of missing that. And there's times when, I, when, when that, the, the, the burden on my shoulders, the responsibility that I care, or you know, I get shot at a lot and, and I got too many things to worry about. There's times when I just want to run to mom and I just want God to hold me. And I want to become this little infant that's so fragile and, and, and just so needy and so dependent. And there's peace in that when I can see God's eyes, God's motherly eyes that has that compassion look towards us, towards me individually. God's love is like the love of a nursing mother. God's love is also like this. And this even blows me away more. This one I don't get at all. God's love for us is like the love of a, of a husband towards a wife, the Bible says. In Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5 Paul says that uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church to make her a bride that is without spot or wrinkle and present it to himself, a holy bride. God loves a church like a husband loves a wife. 
Sometimes we think, oh, that's just kind of a nice metaphor. That's just sort of a, you know, that's not literal. That's just a metaphor. But if you read Ephesians 5 carefully, you find that that is a literal marriage. Jesus Christ really marries the church. We really are his bride. Earthly marriages, those are the ones that are the analogies. Those are the ones, you know, that kind of approximate the real thing. But the real thing is the marriage between Christ and the church. And what Paul is saying here is this, that the kind of love that should exist between a husband and wife, the kind of passion that should exist between a husband and a wife, the kind of intimacy and communion that should exist between a husband and wife, the kind of union, Paul even uses the word one flesh in Ephesians chapter 5, the kind of union that should characterize the love, the passionate love between a husband and wife, Jesus Christ has towards us, his church. And who is his bride? His bride is anybody who's got a heart that says, yes, I do. I do. Wed me. I accept. Jesus Christ has, oh Lord, help us to break through the cliches. Help us to break through the commonality of it. Jesus Christ has for us the burning love of a husband towards a wife. You know, the, the, there's a whole book of the Bible that, that's on this theme. It's the Song of Songs. I want to read just a couple passages from there, the Song of Songs. Steve Van Sickle gave me a tape this week. I wasn't even thinking of the Song of Songs when I was thinking about this sermon. He gave me this tape that was on the Song of Songs, and I fell in love with his song. It's beautiful. Do you, just the idea, it's called the Song of Songs. That's the, that's the first line of, of the book. And, and in Hebrew cultures, they would always take the first line of the book and make it a title. This is a song that surpasses every song. It is the song of God's love, the husband towards his people, the bride. And it is a work of art. It is beauty. It, it is the most beautiful song ever sung. It's the most passionate song ever sung. Do you know that God sings over you? Even that concept. Can you, can you, can you just let the Holy Spirit sear that into your mind, God sings over you. What would you think of a husband who spent his day singing about his wife? Think about it. He's, you know, he goes to work, he's singing about my, his wife, you know, and he, he, he's out there making copies in his business, and, 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 and uh, he's singing about his wife, you know, and he's driving in the car, he's singing, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling. If you sing like that, you might not think much of him, but you would think this guy is really in love. This guy is infatuated. This guy has just got this burning, passionate, incredibly intense love for his wife. I've never seen anything like it. But the Bible says, the Lord says to us in the Old Testament, Zephaniah, I rejoice over you all day long. I delight over you as a mother delights in this infant. Not because of who the infant is, it's because the infant's the infant. The Lord delights in us, rejoices over us. He says in Zephaniah tra chapter 3, I sing over you with great joy. Can you picture God doing that? Like a mother, right? When, when, when Danae was born, I was going nuts. I was just kind of dancing around. I was kind of scared. I thought, you know, this doesn't, you know, this looks a little scary to me, but there's a joy that was there. The Lord delights in his people. The Lord rejoices over his people. The Bible says in Zephaniah 3, he claps his hands as he sings his song. Can you get a picture of God just dancing around, clapping his hands? Can you believe that God loves you that much? He's got that kind of heart towards you? And it kills him when we don't get it. It kills him when we don't get it. He wants so badly for us to know, to see, to feel, to experience, and to be transformed. Listen to what he says to us. Just, just, just let it sit. The Lord, now there's a couple passages. Behold, the Lord says to his, his people. Behold, he says it to you now. And I'm, not talking to the, I'm not talking to the audience. I'm talking to you, 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 you. The Lord is talking to you. If you've got a heart towards him, 
He's saying this to you. If your heart isn't towards him, if, you ha if you're not a believer here this morning, God still has this burning love towards you. But he, he can only delight in you and be ravished by you when your heart says yes to him. Hear this and say yes this morning. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, truly lovely. You are beautiful, truly lovely. And is there in your, in your mind something that says, not really, that can't be true. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the dishes that I broke. You don't know the pants that I've soiled. You don't know the, my past. This can't be true. It applies to John over there. It applies to Sue over there. But it can't apply to me because I'm not beautiful. And there's a voice in the world that will tell you, maybe through your parents being raised a certain way, maybe through past experiences that have occurred, a voice that will say, you know that that's not true. Oh, the Bible says it, but it's true of other people, but it's not true of you. Who has ever thought you were lovely? Who ever thought you were beautiful? Your parents didn't even think that you were lovely. You, your your ex-wife didn't think that you were lovely. Your kids don't think you're lovely. And they're just looking on the outside. If they could see the inside, they'd think you were really ugly. So you know this doesn't apply to you. But God, through the power of your spirit, drive it home to us and it applies to us because it's not about what, what we've done tonight, what, we've, what dishes we broke or the milk that we spilt. It's about who we are. As children of God, you are altogether lovely. It applies to us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say this. The song of the passionate lover. God is a passionate lover. Listen to this. He's the greatest possible being, so he's the greatest possible lover, and he's got this love here. You are all fair, my love. There is no flaw in you. You are all fair, my love. There is no flaw in you. I remember when I first laid eyes on my wife, I thought, this is a thing of beauty. This is perfection. You know, there was, a, in my heart, <laughs> I, I, there's no flaw here. Um, my sister brought her to church, and I, I thought, Lord, you got to save her, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll have a ministry. <laughs> I was overcome with her beauty. And that's how the Lord is towards us. Listen to this. You have ravished my heart, my bride. You have ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes. Little, when, when our eyes meet, when we just meet for a second, my heart is ravished. The word ravished means to take unusual delight in, to, to, to have an unusual excitement towards. In fact, in the Hebrew, it, it means it has a connotation of getting heat in the face. Have you ever looked at somebody that you were so overwhelmed with that you began to kind of get flushed? You began to get heat in the face? Your heart was ravished. It was delightful. And when your eyes met, it was like... That's what God has towards his people. His heart is ravished. Can you see the hunger of God towards us? The passion of God's towards us. His heart is ravished towards us. He's got this infinite delight. His love is as unsurpassable as his greatness and his being is. You couldn't ever be improved. There's nothing you could do that would ever improve his love towards you. And there's nothing that you can do that would ever send his love away. His heart is ravished. Ravished. And then he says in the next chapter, my love for you is stronger than death. Death is irrevocable. Death, when you're dead, you're dead. It doesn't much matter what happens to the corpse. You, know, you don't really care much. You're dead. You can't take it back. You can't reverse it. When you're dead, you're dead. God's love says that's what my, that's what my love is like. God's love is like that. It's there, it's intense, it's passionate, it's burning, it's going on. And he wants so much for us to see that, to experience that. In fact, he says in the next chapter, he goes, My love is a fiery, vehement flame. 
Have you ever felt that kind of love? Have you ever felt that kind of love towards you? Can you picture the Lord God Almighty, the God of this universe, having this kind of love towards you? Towards you? I want so much to be with you. I love you beyond words. I love you in it with an uncontainable kind of love. I get flushed in the face when our eyes meet. In fact, in chapter 6, the Lord says, turn your eyes away from me. I can't take it. If you look at me one more second, I'm going to burst. Because we are his works of art, and he's so pleased with this. It's like this is the most beautiful thing I've ever created. It is you. And it's not because of anything that you do. It's in spite of all that you do. It's because he's washed us with the blood of the Lamb. He finds no flaw because he's washed us with the blood of the Lamb. He finds no spot. He finds all beauty because he sees us as we are in Jesus Christ. The final, the final verse I want to read for you from the Song of Solomon is from chapter 8. Where, where he, say, he says, My love is strong as death. It flashes, its flashes are the flames of fire, a most vehement flame. And then the bride responds by saying, she says a lot of things, but we've got to skip it. But she says this, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Some other sermon, we'll talk on that one. But then she says, then I, then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. As one who finds peace. I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. She's saying there's this. When I see this love and I see this splendor, then when, when, when I see his eyes look at me, I find peace. When you can see, really see, not just information, but experience in a transforming way, when you see the love of Jesus Christ in his eyes, if you see that mother's passionate love in the eyes of Christ, that lover's passionate love in the eyes of Christ, there is peace in your heart because now you are receiving what you were always created to receive. You're created for this. This is what life is. This is it right here. And you can have a whole lot of things going on in your life, a whole lot of junk going on, you can be up to your nose in manure and problems going on and relationships falling apart and health failing. But there's a quantity to your soul that brings peace. You're not a cipher. You're not a cipher. And there's a peace there. Just to be held in the arms of Jesus Christ is peace. To be loved by Jesus Christ is peace. To be embraced by Jesus Christ is peace. So the Bible calls him the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Why? Because he's the Prince of Love. And his love is what brings peace to our life. His love is what brings the peace of, uh, to our life. When we see that to the degree that we see that, we are transformed. We become passionate about, just like the book of the Song of Solomon, we become passionate about him when we see his passion for us. What changes us? This is the center of everything. This is the center of everything. What changes us? What transforms us? What sets us free from sin? What gets us on fire for God is when we see his love and just receive it. When we see his eyes and just receive it. When we see the words as being true about us individually. That's what sets us free. That's what sets us on fire. And so often we put the cart before the horse and we think to ourselves, if only, if only I clean up my act, then I'll be clean. And if only I act lovely, then I'll be loved. And if only I make myself beautiful, then I'll be beautiful. But what you've got to understand in the Song of Solomon is that God's love comes first. His love is what makes you beautiful. His passion displayed towards us is what begins to make us passionate. 
And we never have the power to ever outgrow the things that, that hold us down until we see the beauty of his face. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we, as we behold his face, the glory of his face, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. His love is what changes us. If you find that you're not a passionate Christian, it may be because your picture of God isn't a passionate God. We can only become as passionate as the God that we worship. My prayer this morning is that we'd see the eyes of Jesus and know who we are and that we could resist the cipher statements that are lodged in our mind.